Well, first days and first things are forever embedded in our minds. Think about your first day of school. Now, for some of us, that takes us back a few years. Think about that first date. Maybe with your present spouse or just that first date you ever had. That first traffic ticket. You don't have to raise your hand, just think about it. That first traffic ticket. That first day at your new job. That first fish you caught or that first deer that you shot. That first person you ever led to Christ. That first day that you stepped into this church. The first time you held your first grandchild in your arms. And we're waiting anxiously for that moment. The first time you were really scared for your life. The first plane ride. The first trophy. The first day in the hospital. There's a lot of first in our lives, and they set themselves apart from all other occasions that come our way. And today, we begin a first. This is our first day, our first message in the Old Testament book of Job, and I invite your attention there. The book of Job is right before the well-known book of Psalms. Psalms is always found by just opening your Bible in the middle, and you generally drop down to the book of Psalms. And prior to the book of Psalms is this Old Testament book of wisdom called Job. This book and its main character tend to attract a lot of attention by followers of Jesus Christ. It is the saga that he, Job, endures a great trial of affliction that, that grabs our attention and it tugs at our emotions as justice and injustice ricochet in our mind as we seek to make some sense of this horrific or, ordeal that captures Job in the opening verses before the curtain has really even risen and we've scarcely got a seat. So we begin this first day in this first book, and as we do, I, I want us to consider several misperceptions that we have about the book of Job. What happens as we approach a book, any book of the Bible, is that we can sometimes bring our presuppositions, what we already think the book is going to say. And that may be because we've heard others talk about it. It may be because of our lack of knowing the book itself. But I'm here to tell you that the breadth and the depth of Scripture, the riches of God's Word, tells us that we're never going to mine the treasures completely in any book, any chapter, any verse. This is the Holy Spirit's work in us. I was reminded of some years ago when I was in seminary, and our professor said to us, young men, I want you to think about as you come to a text, as you come to a book, to approach it as if you had never read it before. To come without the, as I said, presuppositions and your notions about what the verse already says or the chapter or the book. To, to come with a freshness. Now, that's difficult because we have studied God's word, many of us. <clears throat> we, we know the breadth of the rest of the story throughout the scriptures. 
So I, I want us to, yes, come with a fresh approach. I'm not asking you to throw out everything that you've learned to date in your memory banks and the Word of God, but I, I would challenge you and us together that we would open much more wider our eyes today and have the ears to hear as we walk through this week and next several misperceptions. The first one is this. There's only three chapters. In fact, there are 42 chapters. But let's admit that most of us know chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then that's the saga, that's when the story goes south, that's when Job suffers everything and loses everything. That's the first two chapters, and then we run to the last chapter, and we see how the movie ends as Job gets everything back. And so let's very clearly say that many of us have only ever camped out in three chapters. Because the other 39 chapters are these back and forth dialogues, many of them between Job and his friends, and they just go on and on and on. Who, who wants to read 39 chapters that are filled with speeches and dialogues when we can just settle for three? The opening description of Job in the very first verse raises the word impressive to a high standard. Notice chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz. Sounds like Disney. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Okay, what's impressive here is not necessarily that he's from Uz. But what comes next rings rather virtuous, blameless and upright, feared God and shunned evil. That's the descriptor that's dropped into our lap in the very first verse of the very first chapter. It's a direct path to the profound statement about the life of this man who is the main character in the book. It's something all of us should ascribe to achieve, is it not? That we would be called men and women who are blameless, upright, fearing God, shunning evil. And yet as striking as that description is of Job in this initial verse, there's something that escalates it even greater, and it's by someone who is greater. Look at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Now, folks, listen up. When man says something about you, that's kind of important. When God is saying something about you, wow, you really should take heart with that. And this is what God does. He affirms what the writer announces, that God is escalating this testimony of his servant Job before Satan. Unbelievably, God even repeats it. Notice in chapter 2, as Job suffers all that he does on that first day of his trial, he loses all of his possessions, he loses his servants, and more importantly and more gut-wrenching, he loses all of his children. Notice chapter 2, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Now listen, God is not repeating things just so he can get enough words in the document. 
There is repetition here that is in all of Scripture intentional and purposeful, drawing attention to the character of this man called Job, even after he suffers this staggering loss. God announcing to the world of Job's blameless and uprightness. Notice even at the end of chapter 1, Job's response. Chapter 1, notice verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. At the conclusion of day one, when he has lost everything, Job did not sin. So too, at the end of trial number two, day number two, we might say, when now he's lost his health, the text declares this in chapter two, verse 10. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. How amazing a response by a man who suffered a catastrophe unlike anyone else. How incredible a reaction to such devastation in his life. And yet, how unfortunately do we respond when we are even inconvenienced a bit? Oh man, the traffic out there, I'm stuck in traffic. Oh, that annoying neighbor, how irritating he is or that close friend who didn't show up when they were supposed to, not Job. Let me give you a second misperception. Job is sinless. Now, I trust every one of us gathered here this morning would say, no, there's only one sinless, and that one is Jesus Christ. But it's easy to slide that direction with Job in these first two chapters in this book, as he interacts and faces these trials in his life, I mean, not only are we tempted to go there, God seems to go there, and Job's response tends to take us there. But Job was not sinless. And one might ask, well, what about the statements in chapter 1, verse 22, chapter 2, verse 10, as to Job not sinning? Well, that is a true story, but I, I want you to lean into that for a moment. It is true in the sense that he did not sin, but it was only true in the sense that he did not sin in this particular issue, in this specific situation, in this isolated trial. Furthermore, when it says here that he did not sin with his lips, you notice that? Chapter 2, verse 10, he did not sin with his lips, does not say he did not sin with his thoughts. For just a few verses later, his thoughts begin to overflow. And his words begin to change as he addresses God and his experiences. Sometime later, we hear several instances of Job speaking. One is this, but now, this is Job speaking in chapter 16, but now he has worn me out. This Job talking about God, he has worn me out. God, you have made desolate all my company. God, you have shriveled me up. God, you tear me in your wrath, you hate me, you gnash at me with your teeth. Job is a mere man, just like you and I. He was sound, he was a pious person, but he was not a sinless individual. We'll save that for Jesus Christ, the one who came to die for our very sins. In the opening chapter, a scene soon presents itself. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. It tells us this... Uh, Scenario where the sons of God come in and also with them is Satan. 
And these sons of God come before God and Satan enters with them. These sons of God can be nothing else than angels because no one can stand before God. No one can see God and live. And joining these sons of God is Satan himself. And God takes that moment to target Satan with a question, with an observation. Satan joins in the dialogue and draws attention, God does, to his servant Job. The rest is history as Satan then goes out and challenges Job, confronts Job, brings trial upon trial upon Job, and sure enough, the war of war begins upon Job. It, the description is in chapter 2. Notice verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There it is. Satan attacks Job. The evil one brings evil into our lives. The apostle Peter would later spare no punches as he describes this Satan. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's a pretty strong statement, but that is so true, obviously, of our adversary. The apostle John didn't hold back either. John says this about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He is a liar and a father of it. This is the commentary about Satan that solidifies his assault against Job in these opening two chapters. Satan bringing this assault against Job. But could we stop the music for a moment? Could we consider something that might make you a little uncomfortable? If we believe the biblical text should speak for itself, then we had better be careful that we don't speak for the text. I want to take you to the opening chapters here again with a third misperception. Satan acted alone in his attack. Yes, Satan does attack, but I'm here to tell you too often we give too much credit to Satan. We often will have this phrase called, the devil made me do it, right? Anyway, that's kind of our blanket statement, and he must be after us. He's devilish. He's inciting evil against me. He's the accuser of the brethren. He is a mighty foe of Christians. But scan chapter 1 for a moment with me. Notice Satan's comment in verse 11, chapter 1. Listen very carefully, chapter 1, verse 11. But now, Satan is speaking, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Underline that word, that phrase, your hand. Satan is challenging God to stretch out God's own hand against his servant. He repeats that charge to God before the second trial. Notice chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5, Satan speaking, but stretch out your hand. There it is again, your hand. Stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan would like nothing better than to see God bring trouble to Job. Okay, so this is Satan's mode of operation. He incites others. 
No big deal, right? Well, consider another individual's comment in this opening chapter, verse 16. Notice verse 16. While he, now who is the he? This is going to be the servant that escapes. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Underline that phrase, fire of God. One of the servants escapes the devastation of the sheep and the servants, and as he recounts the scene, he describes it as fire from God, the fire of God. To this servant, what has happened has been fire of God has come down upon them. Now, you might say, well, that's flowery speech. That the servant here is trying to describe the lightning coming down from the sky and he's calling it the fire of God. Maybe. Look at verse 21. Notice in verse 21 another reflection, this time by Job. Job himself, verse 21, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. The Lord give, gave, and the, underline this, Lord has taken away. Did you notice that phrase? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. To Job, God gives and God takes away. And in this situation, God has taken away his possessions, his servants, and his children. That's a literal understanding of it. In fact, in case there's any doubt in our minds, notice the next verse, verse 22. And all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. God did, Job did not charge God with wrong. In other words, could I suggest to you that Job is seeing the hand of God against him, even though Job is not calling it wrong? Still not convinced? Drop over to chapter 2. Notice Job's words after he has lost everything, including his own health. Chapter 2, verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? Underline that, accept adversity. It appears that Job is crediting God with this activity against him. That's what the text says. Now, we might be quick to admit that, well, Job didn't quite understand the working of Satan behind the scenes and his devious and diabolical schemes. But numerous verses are challenging that thought. There's one more observation, and it's really the one that matters the most. It's God's. What does God say about all this? Notice chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Satan... Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? Remember this one? A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity. Notice this. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. God himself seems to take credit for the calamity which has afflicted itself on Job. 
did Satan act alone in this attack? The writer of the book seems to think differently. The servant seems to think differently. Satan seems to think differently. Job seems to think differently. Even God seems to think differently. I'm just saying. One last thought. Let's go to the last chapter of the book because there's only three of them. Job 42. In Job 42, the Lord has restored all of Job's losses, and we'll get to that over the months to come. So Job has lost everything. Now Job has been restored of everything. But notice the remark that is inserted in verse 11. Chapter 42, verse 11. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all, his, for all the adversity, here we go, that the Lord had brought upon him. The Lord had brought upon him. You catching that? Are you seeing this? Could it be that while God is not the author of evil, that he certainly can and does bring adversity and difficulty and suffering upon humanity, including his own chosen ones? We need to look no further than the cross of Calvary, where God brought judgment upon his own son for our sins. So before we too quickly discard this notion that Satan acted alone, maybe not. At the end of chapter 2, let's return there. At the end of chapter 2, after Job is sitting in the ashes, scraping the pus from his sores that are oozing out all over his body, the war seems to be over. It's done now. Wow, this is all done. He's lost everything, his own health, his wife, and it's just not a good situation. It can't get any worse, right? Well, maybe not. Verse 11, the scene enlarges by three. Chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends, that's what the text calls them, when Job's three friends heard of all of this adversity that came upon him, each one came from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. This trio of friends come to Job and come beside him in this time of great agony and adversity. But what ultimately comes from their mouths and moves Job to revert to defensiveness and even hurling assaults back toward them is their charge to Job that he is self-righteous that he is sinful, that he is careless. Now, isn't it great to have friends that come to you when you're at your lowest point and just kind of bring it even more grief your way? Isn't it great to know that we have friends that when we are suffering, they want to just add a little bit more to it? They, they want to bring words that just are continuing to dig into our situation? I don't think so. And yet here it is that these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar opened their mouths and they hurled these assaults 
uh, toward Job. In fact, much of the rest of the book then is this sparring back and forth between Job and his three friends. It's not a thing of beauty, but here's a fourth misperception I present to you, that the trio of friends were complete losers. Actually, they did have some good, at least initially. Go back to chapter 2, verse 11. After mentioning these three friends, the end of verse 11 says this, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. Each of these three men took time from their schedule to come to Job. Each of them makes the trip that's not just around the corner to come to where Job is. And the concluding words of the verse make it clear what their aim is. They came to mourn with him and to comfort him. That's their intent, whether or not they accomplished it. They came to mourn. They came to comfort him. They came with the purpose of entering into his pain, his suffering, his trial. They could have blown it off. They could have said, ah, you know, life's hard. So what? I'm staying here. Chill. I'll pray for you. I'll be thinking about you. But no, they took time. They put away their concerns and their life, and they came to where Job is. And what they see in verse 12 shudders them. Verse 12, and when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. They arrive and they find Job unrecognizable. And so they can do what one thing? They cry. Their tears lift up to God. When words cannot be found, tears say all that needs to be said. They weep. They enter into Job's mourning. They join him in his sorrow and in his grief in this dire situation because that's what friends do. They take time to move into your time. They come with a plan to comfort. They join hands as they mourn with Job in this prescribed manner in their culture of tearing their clothes and, as the rest of the verse says, sprinkling dust on their heads. What comes next is truly amazing. Verse 13. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days, seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Before we shoot arrows and launch missiles at this trio of friends, remember what the initial evidence points to here. They were not complete losers. They came with a purpose and a plan, even if it soon did change and move from the vertical to the horizontal. They arrived with a desire to mourn and to comfort Job. That's what the text says, and that's what we need to believe. And for seven days and seven nights, they spoke not one word to this suffering companion of theirs because that's what friends do. I'm here to tell you, most of us can't even go an hour without saying a word. Even when we're sleeping, some of us are talking. But not this trio, as for seven days and seven nights, they enter into the great grief of Job and they say, not a word. In fact, you know who says the first word? Chapter 3, verse 1. 
After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. What he says in this great trial of affliction seems to prime the pump for the insensitivity of the friends as their observations now follow and the words come. But truth be told, Job spoke first. I'm here to tell you these trio of friends were not complete losers. Even in their discourses to Job in chapters 3 and following, there is truth going on there. They are speaking some theology, even if it is a bit distorted. It leads Job to call them in chapter 16 miserable comforters. Yeah, they were comforters and they had significant room for improvement. It's a moment that happens when acts of great heroism and athleticism and artistry grants a platform to speak fabulous and memorable statements. Think back to 9-11. As the buildings are bombed and everything is upside down and Americans are upset and fearful have no idea what else might be happening, what other bombs could take place, and up to the platform, and in front of our TV screen steps President Bush, and he delivers a message to calm us down, to settle us. Two years ago, I happened to get home just in time for the final couple plays of this playoff game. It was the Minnesota Vikings and the New Orleans Saints, and it was a crazy finish to that playoff game, back and forth, back and forth, and in the next to last play, the other team, the Saints score a touchdown, and it looks like, okay, they won the game. There's really just like five seconds left. Nothing can happen after this. And next thing you know, the quarterback for the Vikings, Case Keenum, throws an unbelievable touchdown. And the Vikings win it all. And there is pandemonium going, and I'm watching this, it's like crazy, everything is just nuts. It never would have thought that it would have ended this way. And so the reporter somehow, someway, makes the, her way over to Case, the quarterback, and she wants to interview him as, you know, the, the stadium's crazy and, and just, and so she comes alongside him. She says, this must be the most incredible moment in your life. Kay says, actually it isn't. You can see just the jaw drop of the news reporter. He says, actually the day that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior was the greatest Countless historical remarks made it incredible moments in history litter the landscape of society. The book of Job is no different. There are amazing statements made in the book of Job that we actually build songs on. One of those is in chapter 19. I invite your attention there. We actually kind of sang about it this morning. Job 19, verse 25 Job 19, verse 25, hope you're there. If you're not, listen, for I know that my Redeemer lives. That statement has sourced itself in a number of Christian songs over the years. In recent years, contemporary artists like Matthew Ward, Nicole Mullen, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Hillsong, penned words about this theme of my Redeemer lives. It's a memorial statement 
memorable statement by Job in the midst of trial and tribulation. It's a remarkable announcement of truth in the crucible of devastation and difficulty. It's a bold assertion by a man who reacts and responds to hardship with the right perspective toward God and life. It's a, well, let's take a look at that statement. Let's take a look at the context. Let's see the verbal interchange taking place in this chapter. My Redeemer lives. Here's the fifth misperception. Great statements arise in great moments. I want to back up to verse 6 of this chapter 19. Verse 6. This is Job speaking. Job says, Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. Ouch. God has wronged me. That's not necessarily something you want to say too loud. Verse 8. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness in my paths. Remember the hedge of protection that Satan was not too happy about that God had put around Job back in chapter 1? Now it almost appears that Job is complaining about this hedge of hardship that is surrounding him now. Strong words toward God from Job, verse 11. He, God, also has kindled his wrath against me and he counts me as one of his enemies. Now he declares that God sees him as an enemy under divine wrath. In verses 13, 14, all the way through 20, Job is asserting and asserts that now God is using these three friends against him, that God is pitting these three friends against Job, orchestrating this plan of assault against Job. And then the concluding words of verse 21. For the hand of God has struck me. Verse 22. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Do you see what he's saying to his friends? You guys are persecuting me just like God is. And then in verses 23 and 24, he states that there's not going to be a memory of himself on earth that the memory of his life is going to be wiped out, and then that incredible announcement of verse 25, where I know that my Redeemer lives. Folks, great statements are not always made or arise in great moments. And for such a great statement that Job makes, it comes at a very low moment. In fact, I would suggest to you at a time when potentially Job is tanking theologically. Job wasn't in a good place. And I will often say to those that I have opportunity to speak into their lives is that when we get life wrong, it's because we get us wrong and it's because we ultimately get God wrong. Get God wrong, get you wrong, get your life wrong takes us back to getting God wrong and this is where Job is. And though he momentarily adjusts to a healthier perspective, it's not long before he returns to his less than stellar portrait of his Redeemer, as he ricochets all over the theological terrain. Let me wrap it up this morning with some observations, with some insights, with some perspective of, okay, so what do we take away from this look 
this morning at the book of Job. My hope is that you will have a fresh new look, not just at the book of Job, but also at your life. That when you view your life, you are not simply gazing on one chapter or three chapters, but you're seeing there's a bigger picture in your life, not just the here and now, but the greater view. Because if you're in, if you're in Christ this morning, there should be an eternal view of your life. There is an eternal perspective you and I can have that this is not yet done. This isn't the last chapter. The best is yet to come. God is writing the story. And the moment that I get stuck in this here and now, this one moment, I am going to lose some hope. But God has lived longer than just the here and the now. And my life in Christ is greater than just the short-term view. The second observation is that when you and I do slip and slide and when we do fall, we have one who picks us up, one who restores us into a rightful position. Truth is, no one among us is sinless. In fact, as I often like to say, welcome to the club. We're all part of the fellow strugglers club. We're all part of it. Thank God that he is completing what he has begun in us that he is growing us and changing us and bringing us to conformity to the image of his son, that he who is faithful will complete what he's begun in us, and we get to participate in that through obedience. But once again, can I say to you, he is not finished with you. And when you slip and slide and fall, he's still with you. And he's declared you righteous in his son. Now let's go out and live righteously. A third observation, don't so quickly assign all the blame to Satan. Yes, he is a roaring lion. There's no one else like him. But let me tell you, there is someone closer, really close, that is even a greater foe. His name is Self. And he seeks to enthrone on your heart and lead you to live for you and not the one who died for you. Praise God that Christ came to set us free from us. <laughs> he came and he took our sins and has dragged us out of the slave market of sin. And we are no longer servants of sin, but servants of righteousness. And we can then deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow him. And instead of living for us, we can live for him. That's the best choice. And then one final observation be a true friend. Yes, we aren't always the best friend and we need to grow and become a better friend. But let's put the interests of others before our own. Let's be intentional and purposeful in showing ourselves friendly to a world that truly needs true friends. Sometimes it means we simply show up and say absolutely nothing. We have this awkwardness in us that we have to say something because somehow, someway, silence is awkward. And then when we do speak, let us make much about God and so very little about ourselves. I understand. I went through the same thing. You know, let me tell you all about me and about how I handled this. Let's make much about God. 
Let's speak words of encouragement and edification as we seek to pivot our friend from this horizontal view of life and circumstances to the vertical view of our great God who's in absolute control and knows what he's doing. Pointing our friend back to the Redeemer who lives. My Redeemer lives. And that truth will change your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for books of wisdom like Job that we will only begin to scratch the surface on, but books that encourage us and challenge us and stimulate us and remind us that we're not yet where we ought to be, but you're not finished with us yet. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. And as we'll learn in weeks to come, silence is not always golden when it involves you. But you're still there, patient. Our great God, never leaving us, never forsaking us, because your son experienced that reality on the cross for a span of three hours. So that we can say, the Lord is our helper, he is our friend, he is always with us. Thank you, Lord, that just as Job said, and maybe not in the best moment, we can say our Redeemer lives. Our Redeemer lives. He is alive forevermore. That we serve a resurrected Savior. The Savior who understands and sympathizes and identifies with all of our struggles, who knows each and every one of us at this very moment and every detail of our life and doesn't cast us away. So, Lord, thank you that you've got this. Thank you that you continue to teach us, and may we grow in so doing, we pray in your son's name. Amen. You have just finished listening to a sermon audio recording from Fellowship Baptist Church of Dublin, Ohio. For more information about our ministries or to find ways to support our mission efforts, please visit www.fbcdublin.org.